We'll take your Bibles and find your way to John chapter 13 again. We're going to finish this chapter today. John chapter 13. Let me set uh, the verses that we'll be studying in our minds by reading verses 36 through 38. John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to the Lord, to him, to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, A rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Hanging on the wall in my church office are the framed pictures of some of my heroes in church history. Some of the men you would walk in and immediately recognize. They're very familiar, uh, either portraits or sketchings or paintings. For example, I have the picture of William Tyndale, the father of the English Bible, the first translator the one who died for his belief that everyone should own a copy of God's word. Martin Luther is up there, the the father of the Reformation, the one who almost single-handedly stood up to Rome and reclaimed the gospel from tradition. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, is on my wall. In fact, I have a a rare photograph, an actual photograph of Charles Spurgeon uh, that I have framed on my wall. It's a strange photograph. His pose, he has two fingers on his cheek and he's looking off into the distance. It's not one that I want to emulate, but he is on my wall. Jonathan Edwards is on my wall. That powdered wig, that great and last maybe Puritan in America who... um, really brought the elevation of the glory of God almost single-handedly out of the doldrums of the Puritan movement that was moving more into legalism than the holiness of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones is on my wall, uh, the one who stood up in England and said, we need to preach verse by verse and set an expository example for that entire European movement. John Calvin is up there. John Calvin, who is probably the the greatest theologian, he and John Owen, who have ever lived. But there's one picture on my wall that when people come in and they begin pointing and asking questions that almost no one gets. It's a woodcut printing of an old man with a long flowing beard standing in St. Mary's Chapel in Oxford, England, preaching to a very excited crowd. Some are holding on to his feet, begging him. Some are aghast that he's saying what he's saying. And he's holding a piece of paper as he stands in that chapel and preaches. That picture is special to me because he provides a unique inspiration, a special inspiration, different than all of those other men. His name is Thomas Cranmer. Now, Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the English Reformation, He was a leader in the English Reformation. He was the the author of the Book of Common Prayer. He was the one who was the the, the counselor to to, um, Henry VIII when he was moving from Catholicism to Protestantism. He was also the chief advisor for the boy king that was Henry's son, Edward VI. And he gained much, much ground for the Protestant faith in England. However, 
When Mary I came back to the throne, it's an intriguing history. I wish we had the time just to talk more about that. Because you had Henry VIII, who was kind of Protestant and Catholic, depending on which wife he wanted to marry. And then after he uh, died, his son, who was very sickly, uh, came to the throne, who died at 14. And then right after he died, for nine days, a young lady named Jane Grey came to the throne. She's called the nine-day queen. And uh, she stood for the Protestant faith as well. There's a wonderful biography I cannot recommend highly enough called The Nine-Day Queen by Faith Cook that chronicles her short little reign in England. And she died. She was beheaded at 14 years old, barely a junior higher. She died for her faith. Well, Parliament decided that by right of succession that the throne actually did belong, like it or not, to Mary I, who was a staunch Catholic. She'd been in exile. She came back to the throne. And what she did, the first thing she did was to try under threat of life and threat of burning at the stake those who had been leaders in the Protestant Reformation. One of the heads of the list then was Thomas Cranmer. Now, Thomas Cranmer was a very interesting soul. He was one who loved his life. He didn't like pain. He was uh, very timid uh, if the opposition was uh, ahead of him and very strong if those behind him favored what he was saying. Well, fearing for his life, Thomas Cranmer, that great leader in the Reformation, under threat of life, under Mary I, who would soon be called Bloody Mary, he recanted. Mary said, you will recant your Protestant beliefs, your belief in grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone for salvation. You will recant that or you'll suffer the pains of death. And so under the threat of his life, he actually recanted what he believed. In an act of severe, a severe lack of mercy, I should say, Mary said, well, thank you for your recantation, but we're gonna kill you anyway. On the day of his execution, he was brought to St. Mary's Chapel because they wanted him once again to proclaim that he had been a heretic in his Protestant leanings and was going to die a good, faithful Catholic. On the day of his death, he was allowed to preach then that final sermon. There were so many people in the, uh, in the building, they had to actually re position the pulpit. They had to build a special platform in the pulpit. They had to cut out part of the, part, part of the pillar. They, they cut a, a whole section out of the concrete to place this new pulpit there. I've stood there and seen where they've chiseled that out just with chills looking at it. And he stood up and to everyone's dismay held up his recantation and said, I recant my recantation. I'm gonna die a heretic according to the Catholic church. I'm gonna die a faithful Protestant, and everyone was up in arms. They rushed him immediately out to the street, set up his pyre, and burnt him alive. It was March 21st, 1556. What's amazing is that witnesses say that when he was standing as the fire began to lap around him, that he took his right hand that had signed the recantation and he told everyone as the smoke was choking him, this treacherous hand must burn first. And as he held his left hand up in prayer, he put his right hand in the fire until it was burnt to a stump. 
What strikes me about Thomas Cranmer and why he's on my wall is I understand Thomas Cranmer. He so reflects my own understanding of the, uh, my own weaknesses of my own heart. He saved his life to avoid persecution, or thought he did, and he compromised. When summarizing his life, J.C. Ryle provides this simple comment. The best of men are men at best. He's on my wall because I understand him because I think he understands me. Possessing a faith that's sometimes strong and sometimes weak, sometimes bold and sometimes frightened. Well, we find in John 13 a very similar man to Thomas Cranmer. A man who is sometimes strong, sometimes weak, sometimes brave, sometimes chicken. A man who stood in boldness and preaching when there was the crowd behind him and the disciples with him and a man who ran for his life. His name is Peter. We find Peter in John 13, sitting at the Last Supper, being just like we know him to be, a man who let his tongue get ahead of his life. He was bold when he was with Jesus, but we're gonna find out just how bold he is in a few minutes. Remember, we're sitting at the Last Supper with Jesus and his disciples. This is the last time he's gonna be with these 12 men. Uh, he has told them that uh, he is going to die, he's going to suffer, he's predicted exactly how he's going to be betrayed, he's identified his betrayer, that's Judas, Judas has now left the room. Jesus turns and describes, discusses rather, the real intention of this conversation with his disciples, and that is to be ready to live life with him in a spiritual sense, with, by faith, without him in a physical sense. And his instructions that he gives the disciples on that fateful night are the same instructions he would have for us on living a life by faith. Judas leaves and gives um, Jesus the full stage with his faithful men. And the first and most lasting and enduring lesson on Jesus' mind is simply this. Love one another. You would expect him almost to say, love the world, love the lost, love people, love strangers. And that's a part of the Christian faith, but not here. He says, men, love one another. In fact, he goes so far as to say that the world will know that you are my disciples in verse 35. Everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love, not them, but if you love one another. That's the context for the rest of this upper room discourse. Love one another. Now this was not in a vacuum. Remember at that very exact moment going on around the table were arguments about who was the best and who was the greatest. Instead of loving each other, they were trying to step on each other's heads to get to the best position in the kingdom. Utter selfishness. Now Peter weighs in. Now remember, Jesus says something very interesting in the midst of this discussion about love that, uh, that really distracts everyone from what's going on. Look back up to verse uh, 34. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That sounds straightforward enough. 
except that was preceded by verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now also I say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. So he says, I'm gonna leave. I'm not gonna be here with you physically anymore, but you'll seek me, you'll find me in another way by faith, not physically. Now I want you to, in the context of me being gone, to let everyone know that you're still my disciples, that I'm still living and reigning through you by loving one another. Well, we're gonna find out how deeply that little lesson sunk into the disciples' hearts. Basically voiced by Peter. Remember, Peter was the one who in Caesarea Philippi discouraged Jesus from actually going to the cross. Jesus, you're not gonna die. I mean, we have such a good thing going. You can do all these wonderful things. You can feed people. You can heal people. Can you imagine what kind of Messiah you'll be, especially with me at your side? You don't wanna go die. You die who can do all this? What does, Peter, uh, what does the Lord say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, you don't understand it, Peter. You don't get it. You're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about the here and now. Here again, he lets his passions get ahead of his convictions in what can only be described as Peter's greatest failure. And I think as we look closely at his failure, we'll not only understand his failure, but we'll be able to see those same tendencies in our own lives and hearts. So as we unpack these three verses, I wanna discover with you three dangers to recognize in Peter's understandable failure. Three dangers to recognize in Peter's understandable failure. The first danger is in verse 36, selfish distraction. Selfish distraction. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, time out. Where are you going? Now, this is is amazing in the narrative. Jesus just has has told them in the previous verse, everyone is going to know the identifying mark of a believer, that you're my disciple. They're going to know you by how you love other people. The lesson here is love. Peter never heard any of that. Jesus says, I'm gonna go away, but while I'm gone, love each other. And instead of saying, how do we love each other? Peter says, where are you going? Excuse me, Lord. We're here. This is the night before the Passover. Everyone's here. We can announce and proclaim and begin your kingdom. He had just said two critically important things. First, I'm going away and that men could not follow me. Second, in the light of that, you should love each other and the discussion should have gone immediately into the application of love. Footnote to that. Jesus understands that they don't get it and you're gonna find over and over a cyclical kind of lesson surfacing in the next three chapters where Jesus comes back to this issue of loving one another. Now just just to set this in context, imagine yourself at a table with a dozen people. It's rare when you're at a table with a dozen people that one person is doing all the talking. There were lots of things happening here. In fact, if you read Luke and Mark's account, at this very moment is when some of them were bickering about who's the greatest in the kingdom. There are conversations happening all around the U-shaped table. 
That's why Jesus repeats. He keeps saying, love each other. You gotta love each other. Men, you have to love each other. And I think as this moves through the narrative, that it becomes quieter and quieter and quieter and they finally begin to listen to Jesus. Oh, no doubt it had been quiet when he washed their feet. But I think it's getting even more and more focused on what the Lord is saying and why he's saying it. Men, you should love each other. However, Peter is disturbed by the Lord's words in verse 33 that he was going away. And this had to, this was an affront to Peter. And you cannot come. Now, before we beat this apostle up and make him, you know, some kind of colossal failure too much, think of Peter. Think of the, the sweet, endearing nature of this man to his Lord. He wants to keep Jesus close. He wants the Lord to be near him all the time. He doesn't want to miss the Lord's presence. But if the Lord is going away, Peter says, I'm coming with you. I am not going to miss your immediate and abiding presence. I'll follow you. Jesus is going away. Peter insists that he must stay with him or I'm going with you. Don't miss that Peter has this insatiable, loving affection to be with Jesus. We understand why he totally missed the, the lesson of loving others. He, he did love Christ. I'm leaving and you should love each other. Whoa, 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 forget to love each other. Where are you going? Uh, let's talk about leaving. Why did he miss the lesson on loving others? Well, the same reason we do. As much as he did love Jesus, and as much as that was an endearing feature of his character, he was overwhelmed in this moment by complete selfishness. Same reason we do. It's the same reason we don't think often and deeply about loving one another. It's selfishness. This selfishness is what steals love. It cripples love. It prevents love. In fact, think of it like this. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is selfishness. I mean, there are people that, that you don't necessarily love. That doesn't mean you hate them. That's not the opposite. The opposite of loving someone is being selfish, is loving ourselves more than we love them. The absence of loving others is not fueled by our hatred of them, but our love of ourselves. Jesus answers Peter with a most interesting response. He comes back to him and he's, God, God in flesh is so gracious. You would expect him to, just to wear Peter out about not, not getting this thing on love. Instead, he addresses the very thing that Peter is asking. Lord, Lord, Lord where, where are you going? Now, look, think about this for a second. In this moment, Peter is not thinking in categories of heaven. We're gonna see that when we get to John chapter 14. They're thinking he's gonna leave and go be king down on the Temple Mount by 800 yards from where they were in the upper room. And Peter can't go. He's like, whoa, 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 you're gonna go? You're leaving and I can't follow you? I've been with you three years and now we get to the final stage where you're gonna be king and you're not gonna allow me to go? 
Jesus says, you know what? Where I'm going, you cannot follow me. Keyword, now. But you will follow later. He informs him that Peter cannot follow him where he's going in this moment, but he will follow him at a future time. Peter cannot follow the Lord through his crucifixion. But we all know that Peter will indeed die and die for the Lord in a few years. The question here for us is whether or not we missed the same lesson that Peter missed on love. He's gonna deal with the where I'm going and, and where, you're gonna, where you're gonna be and how you're gonna get there. He's gonna deal with that in the next few verses. But don't miss the fact that Peter missed the lesson. Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, no, no. Love, your, love your, your men around the table who you're trying to be better than in this moment. And you are about to see it gets even worse for Peter. Now, before we, again, um, put him in the category of absolute failure, when Peter writes his first epistle in 1 Peter, listen to what's critical on his heart in the very first chapter. Chapter, 22, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, why? Why have you become holy? For a sincere love of the brethren. Then he says, fervently love one another from the heart, he finally gets it. When it comes time for Peter to instruct the people who are following the Lord, he tells them the same exact lesson that he heard, eventually got at the Last Supper. Love one another from the heart. If that's not enough, you can look over at chapter two, verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. Jesus says back in, in John chapter 15, verse 17, sorry. He keeps telling, love one another, love one another. And Peter finally says, okay, I got it. Fervently love one another from the heart. Peter also comes back in chapter two, verse 17, and chapter three, verse eight. Love one another, have brotherly love, be devoted to one another. He was selfishly distracted and what he thought he would lose in thinking about loving one another in his position in the kingdom. Selfish distraction is a danger, and we can understand that easily when we identify with Peter. There's a second danger in verse 37. Pronounced arrogance. Pronounced arrogance. John chapter 13, verse 37. Peter said to him, whoa, hang on, Lord, why... Can I not follow you right now? See where the New American Standard says right now. Jesus says you can't follow me now. Here it says right now. Two different Greek words. He says, I actually, I will lay down my life for you. Peter's not gonna give up this easily. He asked the question you would expect him to, which every two and three-year-old ask, which is what? Why? Why, why? William Hendrickson says of this verse, Peter furnishes perhaps the best illustration found anywhere in scripture of the problem of the unknown self. In other words, not knowing what's really in your heart. First, it's important to see uh, that, that, it, that these are two different words. It doesn't come across in English. Peter uses a different word for now than Jesus did. Jesus says now, Peter says 
right now, right now, in this moment, at this table, I will follow you anywhere. In fact, I'll die for you, Lord. Now, don't, again, be too difficult on Peter. He loved Jesus. He was so devoted to him that he wanted to be where he was. But don't be too compassionate on Peter here either. Look at what he says next. I'm gonna die for you. I will die for you, Lord. I will lay down my life for you. Now look at Matthew and Mark and Luke gives us, uh, gives us more context for what's going on here. Matthew 26, 33, Peter said to him, even though all, all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. So it's even worse. John's being gracious to Peter and doesn't say everything that Peter says. Matthew just lays it out there. Peter actually said, no, this is about me and them, Lord. They may fall away, but not me. You gotta understand, I'm your guy. I will not fall away. Luke twenty two thirty three, But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go even to prison and to death. So he asked, not only will I die for you, you just put me in prison. I will go anywhere you'll go. Now we have to ask here, did Peter really mean this? I think there's some, some affection in his heart that we can say, sure, he, he meant it. He was pounding his chest a little bit and, and grandstanding in front of the other disciples. Remember, they're all arguing about who's the greatest. And Peter says, oh, you guys think you'll do whatever? I'll die for him. But I don't think he really meant it. How do I know that? Because in just a few hours, he is gonna run like a little scared child from the persecution. He's saying, I'm braver than the other disciples. I'm more faithful. I'm above the possibility of compromise. Wow. Be ye careful when you ever get in a position in your heart where you say, I am beyond the position and possibility of compromise. Peter was arrogant. I will never fall away. He was too sure of himself. By the way, this arrogance was copied by the other disciples. In Matthew 26, 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die, uh, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then it says, all the other disciples said the same thing too. They weren't gonna let Peter get away with this. Oh, Peter says, he'll deny. Lord, I'll die for you too. Don't miss the fact that the Last Supper, this was a terrible argument that kept happening with the disciples. They kept stepping on each other's head, trying to be greater than one another. And Jesus just stays the course in this epic lesson. Don't miss the reality, though, that in Matthew 26, 56, after the arrest in the garden, Matthew says, then all the disciples left him and fled. All the disciples left him and fled. These brave men actually competing with each other on who was the, the bravest. All, all the disciples left him and ran. They fled. This is really an illustration of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, what? Fall pronounced arrogance. And I think there's such a lesson here for us. I mean, do you see the Apostle Peter when you look in the mirror? 
You are capable of extreme seasons and notions and natures of, of compromise. So am I. Look, all of us compromised this week. Was there anyone in any situation, whether it was at the, the convenience store, the grocery store, at work, walking by your neighbor, was there any moment in which we did not stop and tell them of the glory of God and the grace of God and the gospel? Well, that's a compromise. Any conversation we were in where we didn't stand up and say, let me tell you what God thinks about this, that's a compromise. It's far more important to simply love Christ, represent Christ, and stand for Christ than it is to talk about him. That's what our conscience tells us. Oh, I'll stand for Christ. I love him in my heart. I, I, I would die for him if I had to. Then your neighbor who is out blowing leaves is lost and going to a Christless eternity and we don't even know their names. Before we're difficult with the Apostle Peter, let's see our own proclivity to compromise. We think, we think we stand stronger than we live. Pronounced arrogance. Peter says, I'll die for you. Well, now we get number three, a third danger, crushing humility crushing humility. And remember, it's only out of humility where God crushes us that true and genuine virtue arises. Verse 38. Jesus answered, huh. Will you, the Greek implies, will you indeed, will you really lay your life down for me? Tell you what, verily, verily, truly, truly, double honestly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. As Peter looks across the table at his Lord, as he stares into the eyes of his friend, as he asserts his commitment to martyrdom, Jesus knows full well that the exact opposite is going to take place in just a few hours. I mean, think of the Lord's omniscient knowledge. I will die for you. And he sees in that moment, you are gonna stand by a fire with a little girl and deny me. Let's follow Peter over the next few hours, can we? He would accompany Jesus in just probably a few minutes down the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden full of olive groves, olive trees. Then Jesus would leave all but three men at the edge of the garden and he'd go, go deep into the grove with just three men, Peter, James, and John. The Lord would say to these three men, I am troubled. Now, anytime your master says, I'm troubled, especially a man like Jesus, that ought to arrest your attention. He says, please stay and pray. Watch and pray. Watch means stay alert. Stay alert and pray. Jesus comes back to check on them three times. All three times they're fast asleep. Remember the little, little uh, lesson he gives us? He says, 
He catches them. He says, could you not even pray for an hour? As if that's a short amount of time to pray. You couldn't even stay awake and pray for an hour. How does that compare to our prayer lives? Judas then brings the Roman soldiers down the Kidron Valley, that garden of olive trees, to arrest Jesus. And in a moment of flashing bravery, Peter, true to his word, gets out a sword, takes a whack at a soldier named Malthus. Malthus must have ducked because he cut off his ear. Ear falls to the ground. And I just think of what Peter, Peter's face must have been like when Jesus looks at Peter and looks at Malthus with all those torches and the Roman guard looking on and disciples trembling and he picks up the ear and puts it back on and heals him. Peter's saying, I would die for you. I would do anything. And the Lord says, what are you talking about? And he heals the Roman soldier's ear. Then Peter ran. Text tells us all the disciples fled. It's a Greek word that means they ran for their lives. They have Jesus and Peter runs. Now we pick up the story, and you can turn over here if you want to, in Luke chapter 22. Luke uh, describes the situation that fulfills Jesus' words to Peter. Luke chapter 22. Let's pick it up in verse 54. Having arrested him, they led him away. This is right after the garden. And brought him to the house of the high priest. Now we find out what Peter was doing. But Peter was following at a distance. He runs out of sight so he's not arrested. And then he kind of shadows this crowd that's taking Jesus away. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. So they bring Jesus inside to try him. Outside there's a courtyard and there's a yard and there's a fire. This is a spring, very chilly at night. They built a fire for the people who were just kind of hanging out and watching it. This uh, fiasco take place. Peter's sitting there warming himself by the fire. And a servant girl, a diminutive a young girl, maybe a junior high girl. Seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him. Now Luke makes this note. You can sit, have you ever been stared at? And you think, I know they're looking at me. And you don't want to make eye contact. And then you finally look and you understand they are staring at you. That's exactly what's happening here. Looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. It's interesting, it says him too, which means they were all there at the fiasco of Jesus. She didn't even have to, have to identify Jesus. We saw him with him too. But Peter denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. 
You're a disciple. But Peter said, man, I am not. About an hour passed. Another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him. In fact, he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. Here's where we get an insight that Luke gives us that you have to wrap your mind around. This third denial take place, takes place as Jesus is being escorted from inside the house where he's being tried and walked out to yet another trial. How do we know that? The Lord, verse 61, turned and looked at Peter and Peter then remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Now let me tell you what I love about Peter. Verse, 50, verse 62. And he went out and wept bitterly. I think it's important to keep going because what happens now adds the insult to the injury, adds the depth of it. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were, were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded Jesus and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Peter sees from a distance, all of this going on and knows that the one he said I will die for is in the process of dying for him. The specificity of Jesus' prediction is remarkable. You can't help notice the contrast here, by the way, between Peter and Judas. Please see the difference. Judas rejected Jesus. Judas also denied Jesus, but in a different way. Judas permanently rejected Jesus, which is different than Peter's temporary weakness about Jesus. Look, we can all identify with that, can't we? Haven't you sensed and felt and identified temporary weaknesses with your affection for the Lord? What's the takeaway from that? Well, first, remember that the lesson of of Jesus that Peter ignored. Man, you gotta love each other. He never heard that, never even heard that. Second, we should be deeply aware of our own temptation to compromise. And we also be, ought to observe the extent of Christ's love. In, in the context of fickle believers, we have a faithful savior. I love 2 Timothy 2, 11. It's a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, he also will live with us. If we endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But 
if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. There's a difference between denying in an eternal sense and denying in a temporal moment of weakness. Jesus was more than the best of men. He was and is and ever will be God in humanity who exemplified the love that he asked us to have one for the other. We're gonna enter into a time of communion now and what a perfect passage the Lord has providentially laid in front of us to see. Communion is really for two things. It's for confession of sin, realignment of repentance, and it's for remembering the Lord. Those two come together to recalibrate our faith with the Lord. Those two come together, those two, two tasks, those two commands come together for us to stop and pause and think about our life and his. I ask you, to, if you would, to bow your heads and men, if you would come and prepare to serve us.